Good morning. <clears throat> I'm a little congested this morning, so you'll have to bear with me. That's why I have this whole giant table to hold my water. It's great. So I, I'm, I have a math background. I have a degree in math, and so I often think in terms of equations, you know. And so as Chad and Tom were speaking this morning, I got this uh, picture, this equation of, of truth, I mean truth, trust. And belief and faith, you know, those words, synonymous words, plus response, you know, plus responding to what you trust in, responding in to what you believe in, equals victory. You know, we can believe things in our head, uh, but until we respond, until we act based on what we believe, there will be no victory. And so, in some ways, I could retitle the sermon, even though I don't talk about, you know, how to have victory in your life, responding to what you believe to be true. Several years ago, we went uh, through a study here at the church called The Truth Project. Anybody remember The Truth Project? One of the things I remember about The Truth Project was the question they often asked, and that is, do you really believe what you believe is really real? Say that again. Do you really believe what you believe is really real? The principle that the the Truth Project folks, this guy named Del Tackett, good guy, was communicating was that if we really believe something to be true, it will impact our lives. We can see what we believe by what we do. What we do and what we say and how we act is a reflection of what we believe. And this doesn't only apply to biblical truths. It's, It's sort of... Uh, in many ways, universal. We saw this with the evacuations from South Florida, from Houston. Most people hold out as long as they possibly could, but when they really believe that a real hurricane is going to come and hit their home, hit their town, they move. When we really believe what we really believe is really real, we respond Once people really believe something is true, it results in them acting based on that truth. And as we come to the end of Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at some biblical truths, some things that are true. Uh, We can call it biblical doctrine, if you will. And it's my prayer that as we see these truths, that we'll not only believe them, but that we'll act upon them that they'll impact our lives, that we'll live based on them. Today we conclude the second major section in the book of Romans. In the first section, if you've been with us, if you haven't, here's the review. Uh, Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, so the first, real first section was just the introduction. Then starting in 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul showed us the need for the gospel. He's talking about the gospel. The theme of this book is the gospel. The truth that we are all under sin, that no one is righteous before God. And then in the second section, that's the section we're ending today, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 4, 25, Paul showed us really the heart of this gospel that he preached. The truth that being counted righteous, being justified, comes by the grace of God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's apart from good works apart from ceremony, apart from obedience to the law. We're saved by grace through faith. 
And in chapter 4, verse 1 through 22, Paul used Abraham, this Old Testament saint Abraham, as evidence for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In these verses, we saw how Abraham, who was the father, who the spiritual example of the Jews, was counted righteous before God, was justified, was saved by God. Abraham was known for his good works. Abraham was known because he was the one God gave uh, this ceremony, this rite of passage of circumcision. It was believed that Abraham was obedient to the law even before the law was given. And the Jews believed that these things, his works, his obedience to the law, his circumcision, that those things saved him, that those things justified him. So in Romans 4, 21-22, Paul shows it wasn't good works, it wasn't ceremony, it wasn't the law, obedience to the law that saved uh, Abraham. Instead, Abraham was justified by God's grace through faith alone. And the main piece of evidence Paul presents for this truth is found in Genesis, way back in Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6. Paul quotes this verse twice in Romans chapter 4. Once in verse 3, and again at the end of his argument in verse 22. After describing Abraham's faith, he writes, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul's shown why Abraham, why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. He's shown how Abraham was justified, how he was saved by faith. And then in verses 23 and 24, so this is, I don't, I don't have a title in your notes if you're following, this is still part of the introduction, but now we're getting into the, the new uh, verses for today. Verses 23 through the beginning of 24, Paul takes what he's shown about Abraham And then he applies it to a much wider audience. Beginning in verse 23, he writes, But the words, these words, it was counted to him, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul's saying the reason Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness was not just for Abraham, but it was for our sake as well. This truth was written for Abraham and for the readers of this letter to the, to the church in Rome, to, to believers both then and now, to you and to me. God had us in mind when he inspired Moses to write, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness way back 4,000 or so years ago. God wants you to take this personally. He wants you to read this and hear this and know that he's talking to you. Paul says something similar in chapter 15, verse 4 of Romans. For whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Genesis 15, 6, written about Abraham, was also written for, with us in mind. It was written for our instruction. And the instruction God's Word is giving is this. God is saying, by my grace... Through faith alone, uh, uh, Don and Sharon and David can be justified. That Mary uh, can be made right with God. That Jonathan can enter into a relationship with his heavenly Father. Not by works, not by ceremony, not by obedience to the law, but by faith alone. I will count you righteous, 
like Abraham, your faith will be counted as righteousness. That's what Paul's making clear in verses 23-24, the beginning. What he's just said about Abraham applies to us as well. So, if you think about that, everything is riding on our faith. On our faith in God. It all comes down to faith. You know, we're saved by the grace of God. That's God's grace, and I, we can't understand it. I'm not talking about His grace today. Through our faith. That's our part, in a sense. Faith. On what we believe to be true about God. Whether we're counted righteous and enter into an eternal relationship with God, or whether we remain in, in this natural state of unrighteousness and enter into an eternity without Him, our eternal destiny will be determined by God's grace given to those who have faith in Him. And so, from the middle of verse 24 to the end of the chapter, verse 25, Paul goes on to describe what we must believe, what we must have faith in about God in order to be justified. He's talked about, through beginning in chapter 3, he said, have faith, faith justified by faith. It's all, and now he's going to say, what is this faith rooted in? What is it centered in? See, the Bible teaches that there are certain specific theological, if you will, truths, certain doctrine that we must believe if we're going to be justified, if we're going to be counted righteous, if we're going to be saved. Now, I know saying that, uh, saying that you must believe specific truth to be saved might sound narrow or exclusive or even, uh, heaven help us, intolerant. We live in an age that says truth is relative. What's true for you might not be true for me. We're told value and, and tolerate the truth of others. And from one perspective, that's, that's positive, right? We should, we should show love and concern and care. We should listen to those who don't share our biblical truths. The Bible itself commands us to love our, our neighbors as ourselves. And that includes neighbors who don't share our beliefs. But to say that their, their truth or all truth is just as valid as the truth found in God's Word is to deny who God is. It's to deny that He is the knower, that He is the giver of all truth. It's to deny the words of Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man come to the Father except through Me. So when Paul says that we are justified by God's grace through faith, we must understand the truth of who specifically this justifying God is. So we can put our faith in Him. Saying, yes, I believe in God. Just having faith, belief in the existence of some supreme being, some general God, is not the kind of faith that the Bible speaks of or advocates. It's not the kind of faith that will justify, that will save. There are specific truths doctrine that we must believe about God, about who God is, about what God does, what He continues to do. We must put our faith in the right God, not a God of our creation, not a God of someone else's invention. And so, in this final sentence, really it's just a sentence, of Romans chapter 4, the middle of verse 24 to the end of verse 25, Paul uh, beautifully summarizes what we must believe about God to be justified by God. This is what we must believe to be saved. 
And this should be of great importance to us. Because belief, uh, faith in these truths not only brings us eternal salvation, but if we really believe what we believe is really real, then our lives will be impacted. Our lives will be changed. We'll experience transformation. We'll act based on the truths about who God is and what He's done. So what we're going to do this morning is to examine these three truths. I think there's three truths that Paul says we must believe about God in order to be justified by God. And we, you know, we're, we're going to say them in, in the way Paul has them here. Maybe there's different ways. He says them in different ways, in different parts. But I really think they summarize the gospel, the heart of the gospel, what we have to believe about God and about what he's done. And then we'll briefly look, wish we had more time, at how these truths, when believed, should impact our lives. What, what do we do with this truth? I, I say I believe it, what do I do about it? So the first thing that Paul says that we must believe, believe in is God's power over all things. We must believe in an all-powerful God. We must believe in a God that has the power to save. We'll get to that. In the second half of verse 24, we read, It, uh, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Paul begins by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll come back to the resurrection. He mentions it again in verse 25. But here he's saying that we will be counted righteous if we believe in Him, in God, who raised Jesus from the dead. If we put our faith in, 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 in the God who can raise the dead. If we believe in God who has the power over life and death. In context, I think Paul is pointing us back. He's connecting us to what he said in verse 17 that we looked at a couple weeks ago about Abraham, about what Abraham believed. He says, he, Abraham, believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We looked at this verse two weeks ago. Uh, We saw that Abraham believed in an all-powerful God who could create from nothing and give life to the dead. And in Romans 4.19, we saw the impact of this belief in Abraham's life. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham believed God uh, for the impossible. His body was dead, as good as dead. His uh, reproductive part of him was dead. His wife was barren, but he believed God could give them life. Isaac Their son could only be conceived and carried and born through the miraculous intervention of an all-powerful God. And in the same way, Paul says, we are to believe in a God who can do the impossible. We must believe in a God who can create from nothing and who can resurrect from the dead. We must believe in a God who has power over all things. But to believe in this kind of God, we have to go against our culture, don't we? In our world today, God's power, uh, God's existence are constantly challenged, constantly denied. Our our world is marked not by faith in a supernatural, all-powerful God, but by belief in a completely natural reality. Naturalism is the faith of much of our world. 
This faith teaches that there is no supernatural reality. There is no God. And therefore, naturalism, this faith, seeks to explain the origin of all things without a supernatural creator, without one who calls into existence the things that don't exist, and without one who gives life to the dead. There is a, this is the reality of the culture that we live in. But this is not real. This is not true. Because the truth found in God's Word and in creation and in history, if you will, is that there is a God who creates. There is a God who resurrects. There is a God of power. An all-powerful God. And Paul says the faith that God credits to us, that God counts to us as righteousness, is faith in this God. In this all-powerful God. The God of creation. The God of resurrection. The God who gives life to the dead. A God who by His power brought Jesus Christ out of the tomb after three days. A God who who can take one who is dead in their sins. We have to believe. If we're going to be saved by God, we have to believe He has the power to save us. Right? If we're going to be saved, okay, God, my sins, they're they're oppressive. I can't get out of them. I'm guilty. We have to believe in a God that has the power to wipe that away and give us new life. So first, we must believe in God's power over all things. And second, we must believe in God's provision for salvation for sinners. This is really the heart of, our, of what we need to believe in. I think the, the first and the second flow from this. Romans 4, 25 uh, 24-25, it, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. We must believe that Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. That word delivered means to be handed over to. You know, it's, uh, the, the UPS makes deliveries. He hands over to you packages. Jesus was handed over for our sins. For your sins. For my sins. And the question is, first, who handed Him over? Who handed Him over for our trespasses? Was He handed over by the soldiers who crucified Him? Was He handed over by Pilate, the Roman governor? By Herod, the, the Jewish king? By the Jewish mob who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him? Well, they may in one sense have handed him over to be crucified, delivered him up to crucifixion, but that's not what Paul is saying. He says, Jesus, who was delivered up, handed over for our sins, for our trespasses. And the soldiers and Pilate and Herod and the Jewish mob didn't hand over Jesus for our sins. So who handed him over? Acts chapter 2, verse 23, gives a a clear answer. This Jesus, delivered, handed over, up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, Jesus was crucified and killed by men, soldiers, Pilate, Herod, the mob. But it was God who was in control. It was God who ultimately and finally, as part of His definite plan and foreknowledge, He knew this was coming from, uh, from, I don't know, from whenever God knows things. 
from eternity past. He delivered Jesus to the cross, to death. We need to understand that the death of Christ was designed by God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God didn't spare Jesus. He gave Him up. He planned His death. Jesus didn't die at the hands of lawless men only. He was delivered over to death by God. Why? He was delivered up for our trespasses. Through Christ, God provided a a sacrificial substitute so that we would not have to die for our own sin. So that we could be saved from the tragic results, the tragic eternal results of our sin. And just so we're clear, the only sacrifice, you know, the blood of lambs and goats sacrificed over the the centuries uh, meant nothing. They were only a picture. The only sacrifice that could that could do that, that could pay for our sin, was the death of the Son of God. Why did God not spare His Son? Romans 8.3 says, God, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In Christ, God justly deals with our sin. God rightly takes care of our sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. In Christ, through His a sacrificial and substitutionary death, God condemns sin. He puts away our sin. Christ on the cross paid for our sin so that we could be saved. He saves us from our sins. He rescues us from the penalty of hell. He delivers us from the wrath of God. He provides us with salvation. Salvation that we uh, do not deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve to die We deserve to spend eternity in hell and endure the wrath of God. But instead, God, by His grace and mercy, provides us with salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the God that we're called to believe in. This is the God we must believe in so that we can be counted righteous. The God who has power over all things. And then the God who chooses to use that power to provide us with salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul says we must believe in God's proof of justification. It, uh, righteousness, back to verse 24, will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Paul returns to our belief in the resurrection. He returns to the resurrection of Christ. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was raised for our justification? If you were with us uh, a number of weeks ago in Romans chapter 3, where Paul began this description of justification, he, gives, he, goes, he goes from our need to be justified to describing it in a number of verses. You might be a little confused. Well, what's resurrection got to do with that? Because in those verses, as Paul describes how we're justified, he doesn't mention the resurrection at all. In fact, in Romans three twenty four and 25, Paul writes, uh, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atonement by His blood to be received by faith. It's all about the crucifixion, the shedding of His blood. According to these verses and others, it's the death of Christ that's the basis for God's justification for sinners. 
redemption and salvation, justification, has to do with Jesus' death on the cross. His blood shed for you and me. That's what we saw in the last point. That's what uh, Paul just said. It was Christ's sacrificial death that provides for our salvation. So what does Paul mean, Romans 4.25, when he says that we must uh, believe that Jesus was raised for our justification? I don't think he's speaking of what the resurrection accomplishes. I think he's speaking of what the resurrection proves. The resurrection is God's proof that a full payment for sin was made. The resurrection is God's proof that through Christ's sacrificial death, we can be, we who believe are, justified by faith. The resurrection is God's proof to us that the penalty for our transgressions, our sins, has been fully paid by Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he said a number of times, a number of ways, that he would die for the sins of others. The time for the crucifixion came, and he died. He died on the cross. But the question remained, was his death an acceptable substitute? Did he, was his death just a, a death like every other death? Or was it different? Was it a sacrificial substitute for your sins and for mine? Did God accept this sacrifice? And for three days, the question remained unanswered. The, the disciples were uh, in sorrow. They didn't understand. The body of Jesus lay in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea three days. But then the hour came, and yes, praise the Lord, Jesus rose from the dead. And this was proof that God had accepted what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. R.A. Torrey wrote, this is a long quote, but it's up there, so hang with me, it's, it's, it's really good. When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. When he rose, he rose as my representative, and I rose in him. I look at the cross of Christ and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher and, and the risen and ascended Lord and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me. No matter how many or how great my sins may have been, my sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins may have been as deep as the ocean, but in light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that His Son did upon the cross. The resurrection is God's proof given to us that we can be justified by faith in Christ. And Paul says, we must believe this proof. We must believe in the resurrection of Christ. So what... what my, so, okay, I'm stuttering. Let me take a little drink of water here. So what must we believe? Let's review. We must believe in God's power over all things. His power to create and His power to give life to the dead. His power to save. His power to resurrect. 
We must believe in God's provision of salvation to sinners. That through the death of His Son as a sacrificial substitute, that we can be saved. And finally, we must believe in God's proof of justification. Proof that He did save. Proof that He did accept Christ. That by raising Jesus from the dead, God has proven that Christ's sacrifice was good, was accepted, and that we can be justified by faith, that we can be secure in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel that Paul preached, and this is the gospel that we must believe if we're going to be counted righteous before God. Now, I want us to stop and think about this for a moment, because we, uh, we in case you didn't know this, we're at church, and most if not all of us, would identify ourselves as Christians. If you don't, that's, that's fine. Thanks for coming today. And so as we looked at the life of Abraham, and we saw that being counted righteous, being justified, comes by God's grace through faith, we've said, I get it and I believe. And today, when Paul applies this to his readers, to the church in Rome and to us, when he says that we have to have faith in a God who has power over all things. He says, if we have faith that God raised uh, Jesus from the dead, proving our justification, if we have faith that God delivered His Son Jesus as, as a sacrifice for our sins, if we believe these truths, then we, like Abraham, can be counted righteous. We'll be justified. We'll be saved from our sins. And, and we say, yes, I believe I have faith, but the question I want to leave us with is this. Do you have faith in these truths, not only to secure your uh, justification and therefore your eternal position in heaven, do you have faith in these truths just so you're saved? Or does your faith in these truths impact your life? The question is, do you really believe what you believe is really real? Because if what you say you believe is not impacting how you live, then you need to ask yourself, do I really believe it? Does that make sense? If you say you believe something, but no evidence, no one would know, do you really believe it? And so what I want us to do as we conclude this morning is just a little self-examination. I'm gonna, it's a guided self-examination. I want us to look at, at responding to what we believe. I want us to see some of the things, not, not all by any stretch of the imagination, that the Bible teaches about what our lives should look like if we really believe what we believe is really real. If we really believe God has power over all things. If we really believe that God has provided you a sinner with salvation, and if you really believe God proved your justification, there's security in your justification because Christ rose from the dead, then your life will look very different from the lives of those who don't believe these things. Much of the Bible describes what our response to who God is and what God's done for us should be. But this morning I've just chosen four verses to briefly look at. These are just, just examples of how the Bible teaches 
that our lives must reflect what we believe. So first, uh, Isaiah 12.2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. God has provided my salvation. He believes that. Therefore, I will trust. If God has provided my salvation, then I must respond by trusting Him. And will not be afraid. The God of all power has saved me, Uh, what do I have to fear? What is there to fear? For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. If God is all-powerful and God has saved me from my sin, then I can turn to Him for strength. I can trust in Him for my salvation. There's no need for me to fear the, the many difficulties of this world. So those who really believe will be characterized by trust, by by gaining their strength from the Lord, by going to the Lord who provides us with strength. They'll be uh, characterized by a lack of fear for the things of this world. Then in Romans 8, 31 and 32 we read, if God is for us, if the all-powerful God is for you, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Uh, No thing, nothing. Again, we have no need to fear anything or anyone. We need not fear Satan or other people or even nature itself. The life of a believer should be characterized by security, by peace. That's what Paul's going to say in chapter 5, verse He follows this up. We'll get to it next week. Therefore, because we've been justified, we have peace with God. And there's peace in our lives in times of trouble for For God is for us. And how do we know He's for us? We saw this earlier, but again, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. We know God is for us because He didn't spare His own Son. God provided salvation to to you and to me, to sinners, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And based on that, Paul goes on to make this oh-so-amazing promise. How then? If God didn't spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Because God is all-powerful, and because God has provided us with salvation, we know that He will give us all things, Paul says, and this should certainly impact the way we live. This should cause us to be a, a generous and a loving and a caring people, believing that we're secure, that we've received this uh, overwhelming grace and mercy from God. And that we're secure that God will provide us with all things. So those who really believe will again be characterized by a a lack of fear in this world, in this life, by security because of what God has provided and will continue to provide. And by generosity and believing in God who provides all things. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, we read, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We sang about this. When God, by His grace, provides you with salvation through the sacrificial death of His Son, and when you, by faith, uh, accept that sacrifice, you enter into an agreement. An agreement with God in which, and get this, you give yourself to Him. You are no longer your own. For on the Christ, for on the cross, Christ purchased you with his blood. 
And how are we to respond to this amazing truth? Paul says, so glorify God in your body. If we really believe that God has provided us with salvation, then our response must be to glorify God, to make God look great, to declare His praises, to put God first in every area of your life, to declare His mighty works of salvation to all peoples. And I could go on about what it looks like to glorify God. The people know that that you know God. The people know how great at least you think God is, how great you believe God is. They might not share that, but do they know you think God is great? So if you believe your so if you believe your life will be characterized by the knowledge that you are not your own. That you no longer live for your purposes, but for the purposes of God. And chief among God's purposes is His glory. You, you believers live for the glory of God. Then finally, 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. Paul's speaking about his and his companions' ministry to the church in Corinth. And he says this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. This is the response that we as believers should have. Uh, uh, we should be controlled by the love of Christ. Paul and his company uh, were controlled by the love of Christ, and that caused them to minister, to care for, to love others, especially within the body of Christ. And why did the love of Christ control Paul? And why should the love of Christ control us? Because we've concluded this, he says. Because we believe something to be true. We believe something is really real. What did Paul believe that caused the love of Christ to control him? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Paul believed that Christ died in his place. That Christ died for his sins. And not for his sins, but for the sins of all. And therefore we all have died. This is another response to God's provision of salvation through Christ. That, we, that when we accept that provision, uh, we believe that the result is our own death. Not the death of our physical body but the death of our old self, the the death of our old way of life. When we believe that an all-powerful God has, through His Son, provided us with salvation from our sins, we must respond with death. Death to ourselves. Death to our sinful self. So that, Paul writes, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Our response is not just to die to our old self uh, and just remain kind of like this zombie, but it's to be reborn, to be born again, and to, uh, to be like Christ, to be resurrected unto new life. A life not lived for ourselves, but a, a life lived for Him, for Christ who died for our sins and He was raised to prove our justification. So if you believe then you'll be controlled by the love of Christ. You'll love and care and minister to others. You'll die to self and and live for Christ. And I just have a a little homework, if you you will. I know everybody's homework. This is church. I can't do homework. Uh, Just keep reading past verse uh, 15 there, down to the end of the chapter. There's uh, uh, several other things that should... If you truly believe, then... 
should be reflected, not least among them, is you should be an ambassador of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and He gives you this ministry of reconciliation, He goes on to say that you're a representative of Jesus Christ now. If you truly believe in Christ, then you must represent Him in this world. It's back to that final response of, of living for Christ. That you'll die to self and live for Christ. I think that summarizes, that, let that be our summary for this morning. I think that's throughout uh, all these verses and throughout the Bible, it describes the right response of those who believe. Our response to an all-powerful God who provides sinners like us with salvation and proves our justification with His resurrection, our response must be to live for Him. And that's what I want to leave us with today. If you really believe the truths we've seen about God, about who He is, about what He's done, if you call yourself a believer, if you say that by God's grace I've been justified, counted righteous through faith, then you must allow God to be in control of your life. You must trust in Him and obey Him and love Him and glorify Him and honor Him and be an ambassador for Him. You must, be, you must live for Him. Not for yourself, but for Him. And if today you would say, yes, I believe. I really do. But I struggle. I struggle to live for God. I struggle with that response. Then I'd encourage you in two ways. Uh, You're not meant to do this on your own. First person to go to is God. Go to God. Go to His Word. Just soak yourself in His Word. Allow it to reveal to you over and over again His amazing love and grace for you. Be encouraged and guided by His Word. And then go to prayer. Fall on your knees and say, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Because wherever we're not responding to God the way we should, it's because we don't really believe what we really believe is really real. Help me with my unbelief. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Help me overcome times when I live for self and not for you. So first, go to God. He's there waiting for you. And second, uh, go to one another. God's put you in this place, in His church. He's put you among the body of Christ. And, and we're called, in fact, the love of Christ should control us to minister to and care for one another. To pray for and encourage and challenge and teach and disciple one another. Responding to what we believe is a group project. And so I'd encourage you to seek out a a group of believers. One or two or three. A group. A small group. Oh, we'll talk about the small groups. Imagine that. We're, We're meeting in small groups and the purpose of these small groups is this stuff. It's to, it's to grow together in Christ. It's to encourage one another with our unbelief. It's to help us respond properly to what we believe in. It's to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So plug in to a small group. They're listed in your bulletin. And I would just say, I would encourage you. Encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Encourage you to, to, to do that self-examination through His Word. As you read His Word, say, is this okay? I say I believe. Now I'm reading this, it's telling me what I need to do, am I willing to do it? 
Am I willing to do it? Does that describe my life? And if not, then go to Him. Go to your church. Go to your fellow believers. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank You for just who You are, for, for, your, for Your power over all things, for Your power to save us, for Your amazing power to give life, to resurrect from the dead. Lord, and that You chose to use that power to save us from our sin through Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. To raise Him from the dead. Proof that You've justified those who trust in You. And I, I pray for myself and I pray for each person here that we would take those truths and they wouldn't just be uh, stuck somewhere in our brain, Lord, but they would be lived out through our hands and our feet and our words and our, our interactions with others. Lord, help us to live out what we believe in Christ's name. Amen.